Hey everybody, I am Damien DiCarlo. Welcome to another Making a Geek. I am so excited. We're going to be geeking out on some Star Wars today. We have two awesome guests, so let's not waste any time during this quarantine. Let's get started so that we can all go back to doing absolutely nothing. Today on the show are two very awesome geeks. They are an Eisner-nominated publishing company called Fanbase Press, known for such graphic novels as Quince, and have their own podcast, The Fanbase Weekly. Please welcome Barbara and Bryant Dillon. How are you guys? Very good, Damien. How are you? Thank you. Pretty good. Thank you for us. How, how have you guys been uh, during quarantine? Have you been coping, keeping busy? <laughs> We've definitely been keeping yes, busy. Yeah. That's for sure. um, we're still going strong with Fanbase Press. We've got some projects in development, mm-hmm. and then, of course, still doing the podcast. Yes. Albeit remotely. All virtual. yeah. Virtually now. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely keeping busy. Yeah, it's been tough because a lot of people have been going kind of crazy and, you know, trying to find things to do. Some people haven't yeah. been working. I've been fortunate enough to still work, but a lot of people have been out of work, unfortunately. So now it's been kind of a stay at home and let's all just be productive. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) So I'm so glad you're on the show. I wanted to geek out about Star Wars um, in light that it's now on 4K and on Disney Plus. I figured I'd start uh, a series of reviews on it. And now we start on episode one, Phantom Menace. So it re- got released in uh, May of 1999, directed by George Lucas. It grossed over $1 billion in the box office. It's been released on various home video formats, and now with its recent restoration release on 4K formats, people are probably more into Star Wars now than ever being in lockdown. So looking 21 years later, looking back, which is crazy let's let that sit in for a second 21 years ago it's so so crazy to say yes 21 years (laughs) time has seriously flown by for me like that's that's crazy for me but um and as big geeks as such as yourselves and my myself i want to look back and see where where do we what, what do we think now back in you know 1999 looking back on this now in 2020 after the completion of all nine episodes of the skywalker saga the side stories, the animated series. There's been so much since then. Yeah. Um, it's safe to say we've come a long way. For Absolutely. Sure. Do you want to um, go ahead and start? Um, sure. <laughs> uh, I will say that I don't know if this is unusual, but I find myself, at least in my peers, to be in an unusual place with Star Wars uh, because I feel like I've been able to um, let go of some of the the, um, I guess some, some of the things that defined Star Wars when I was growing up and when there was only three movies. And so I've, I've been through this process where uh, I was there when the prequels were released. Um, I remember very specifically um, being very excited for episode one and then um, not realizing until I think a year or two later that a lot of people felt like it was bad or there was some sort of uh, negative attention to it. For me, it was just another Star Wars film that maybe wasn't my favorite, but just was 
you know, the beginning of something new. And so I uh, definitely went through a period where I started to be more critical of the prequels. And I think now, especially with the addition of stories like the Clone Wars and um, the sort of the redefining of the canon around the Disney purchase, um, I actually appreciate the prequels a lot more than I did when they initially came out. And I think that even though I have my own issues with the sequel trilogy, I can be, I can be critical there too. As an overarching story, uh, it all tends to work more than it doesn't work for me. And so it's it, for, for me now, I think it, I actually enjoy revisiting Phantom Menace 20 years later, maybe more than more than initially when I, when I saw it. Totally agree with you on that. Barbara, what are your thoughts? I would echo that. I mean, what's funny to me is that uh, I guess we were in high school when the prequels came out. And uh, I remember going to see it. I laughed because my older brother is an actor and was an actor when we were kids. And he sent in his resume and his headshot because he wanted to uh, audition for Anakin. Sadly, he did not, obviously did not get it. Um, but uh, I remember vividly how excited he was. I was not then nearly the Star Wars fan that I am now. Um, but I remember still having a really good time and I went to see it. And like Bryant, I didn't realize that people hated it as much or mm -hmm. had, as, had as many issues uh, as they did until later. Um, I, I myself, as the movies went on, had some issues with the other prequel movies. But uh, now in revisiting it, and especially because it's brought us things like the Clone Wars and Rebels and Resistance and everything, Mandalorian, everything that has come to pass since then, right. um, really value being able to go back. I mean, Bryant and I have hour-long conversations sometimes because we're sure. huge geeks about just like diving into the mythos and the canon of not only the movies, but how it relates to all of the animated stories and everything that's expanded as part of the universe. So, um, of course, I, I can still recognize, you know, as a, a cinema goer, uh, as a, a, an art connoisseur, I guess if you would say, that there are issues there. So they're certainly not perfect movies by any means, but, um, but the fact that they are part of this overarching beautiful story um, that is very Shakespearean in nature is, is really fantastic, and I, I appreciate them for that. I remember looking back uh, as I was remembering writing some stuff down, I, I remember being younger when I went and saw it in theater and um, before that when the internet was really kind of still on its first leg of getting out there yeah. with movie trailers. I remember people paid full price tickets for films that they weren't going to see just to see the trailer. The trailer. Yeah, for episode yeah. one. <laughs> I remember getting those stories and I was like, yeah, I can't wait. I, I didn't do that. But um I, I nonetheless waited eagerly to go see it. And it was just funny because looking back, I'm like, we we are spoiled by the internet now when it comes to uh, promotions and, and trailers. Uh, uh, on Retro Game Night, I had a buddy that we did an episode about the review of episode nine and how we feel like some trailers now just reveal too much. Sure. And back then it was kind of left a little bit of a mystery or kind of like you'd have to go pay a full movie ticket or go see the movie to go see a trailer for it. So you had to kind of work for it. But now I feel like it's everything's handed to us to uh, kind of know what to expect. And then we had a friend go with us at the when it premiered and he vowed to not see any trailers for any of the uh, sequels for the for Star yeah. Wars, and so he purposely avoided every single one. And to see his face 
upon seeing episode nine stuff that we all kind of knew from the trailers he had sure, no yeah. clue and he was just giddy and having a fit <laughs> so i feel <laughs> that nowadays it's it's kind of nice to be able to have that sense of surprise yeah like we did during episode one we didn't know where it was necessarily going to go except for anakin mm-hmm. um what are some of the uh memories you guys have uh, as far as the movie in in terms of like um did, did it live up to what you wanted in episode one looking back or did it improve like you said brian over time as you saw it later on for me it was definitely was over time i guess i remember i i uh i had a funny way of seeing it i uh, actually got i was in high school i got uh my teachers to actually sign off on a official absence to get out of class because there was a new star wars movie and uh, awesome. i dressed up with like four people in my small town and we went and saw saw it once uh in the day by ourselves and then i, I think my family came with me later that night so i saw it twice that first day and i i remember distinctly um the second time being um, sort of anxious or um, bored maybe uh, during certain parts and, and, and sort of anticipating other parts that I was looking forward to, especially the, uh, the finale with the lightsaber battle, I think really wowed everybody. Yeah. Um, but now, uh, and I also will say, I do remember being like sort of resistant to the idea of midi-chlorians and this idea of demystifying the force because we had uh, one, of, one of the things I talk to Barbara all the, all the time is we came into this film, I think, and the new prequels, or the, yeah, the new prequels, like you, you can refer to them like the that. The um, No, this, this, these, these were the new films when we only had the original trilogy, oh, gotcha. you know? And so these were sort of like, oh, these are these new prequels, but we had these very defined ideas as an audience of like, this is what a Jedi is, and this is what a Sith is. And I, even, not even really knowing, like it was more dark, uh, force users because they didn't really say Sith very much at that point right. time, and so there were a lot of things where I think we as an audience were on a different uh, level or different page than George Lucas because he had his thoughts in his head and he didn't. I think at the same time quite understand that we didn't completely understand it. It takes years later to go like, oh, we defined as an audience everything about the Jedi off of Obi Wan Kenobi, who was sort of a failed Jedi living a weird like. Uh, resurgence or rebirth sort of in the desert that isn't even what the Jedi were like at the at their height and why they were corrupted and so I remember being very like as a Star Wars fan like oh I don't know how I feel about this stuff now I go back and look at it and it's really fascinating even if some of it could be uh, attributed to flaws it's fascinating to go like oh why did the Jedi Order have these things going on what was the purpose of the midi-chlorians as both a, a thing for the Jedi in order to evaluate things around them. And as a storyteller, is, is George Lucas suggesting that this is just science that would exist? Is he suggesting like, this is how detached the Jedi have gotten from the force that they think that they can like read it in, a, in some sort of scientific way? But it, things like that uh, really, I think, improved over, over the ages with me. Yeah, I think it definitely started like that. You're right. Um, for me, I, I, and again, I will bring up my older brother, uh, because I, I watched the uh, regular series four through six 
uh, it was just on loop in our house. I mean, it, it, to the <laughs> point when I just, I, at that point in my life, I was like, I don't really like Star Wars because I, I didn't connect with the stories the way other viewers did. I just knew like it, it was the movie that's on all the time and you know by I'm heart. sick of it. I know yeah. it by heart, but I don't. So you you didn't it. get into this until later. That's funny. No. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until Rebel I, or Clone Wars, Clone Wars that I yeah. got, really got into right. Star Wars. Um, but for me, going and seeing episode one, it was all about like Darth Maul and wow, that seems awesome. And I was huge Ewan McGregor fan, so I was like, oh, <laughs> it's all about Ewan um, and Darth Maul. That's all I needed. That was like super yeah. exciting for me and that was really fun. But yeah, I, I really, like the things that impacted negatively or had a stigma attached for other viewers, I really didn't care, carry with me because I hadn't been living that for decades at that time you know i hadn't built up fan theories in my head to make sense of things i hadn't carried with me what i knew from the original trilogy um so for me it was just kind of like oh this is more of what i already know but i don't really know it very well so i, I think i that's why i didn't necessarily have that visceral reaction like a, a lot of other viewers did i feel like my one complaint now that you mentioned you 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 brought up ewan mcgregor darth maul those two yes. very pivotal actors and characters i, I kind of I, I to this day i still feel some sort of regret that i couldn't see more of darth maul in the films though we saw him later in mm -hmm. other you know um in story arcs but i feel like the films it, it could have been nice to have him still go on a little bit more sure mm -hmm. um and so I, that brought me to a question i had on my podcast with uh retro game night when we looked back on the other episodes that his presence in the film was very powerful. He had a very, very great uh, uh, vibe as, as a Sith Lord. He had all the qualities you would want to have in a villain for a main film like that. So I, I kind of wish that it would have been explored more. And, and my question to my, to my co-host at the time was, do you feel that whether it's the new sequels or even the prequels, does it lack a little bit because of the, the lack of presence of Darth Vader because as the original trilogy, we saw Darth, Darth Vader the whole time and his character was very intriguing. It was, it was, it was dark. It was mysterious. I kind of feel that Darth Maul had a touch of that and then we lost him <laughs> after episode one for a little bit. Uh, do you, what, how do you feel about that? Do you think that the films do well without Darth Vader's presence in one way or another? That's a really good question. Uh, and do you mean just in terms of the sequel trilogy? Yeah, and just and I, I know that they reference him almost in every mm -hmm. film, but mm -hmm. when you see episodes four, five, and six, you're seeing him suited up like you right. did in episode yeah, sure. three, being yeah. Darth Vader. I mean, let's face it, we see episode three, which was a very epic film, because you know where it's going. When you see him in costume, in in helmet it's that sense of I, I, I belong here to see this. I, I, I need to, I, I'm longing to see him be Darth Vader again. And then I, I think judging by the audience, when we saw Rogue One, it was the same reaction. When he was there, it was sure. yeah. everyone flipping out. So I kind of feel that while Star Wars has so many great story arcs, so much to explore, I can't help but feel we've been spoiled by the presence of Darth Vader because we always want more of it. 
Yeah, I think I'm, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, I think it's so hard. It's like one of those things where you're set up to compete against such an iconic villain who has exactly. come to stand for like villainy and evil and bad death. Yeah. Uh, and to compete against that is, is monumentally a, a difficult task. Um, honestly, I that's actually a really great question because it makes me think to um, the overall arc and I know that there have been and we've had lots of conversations yeah. about like the issues of the sequel trilogy as a whole and the cohesiveness or lack of cohesiveness with the story arc uh, and what they're trying to tell but honestly for me and especially in having revisited all of the movies multiple times especially with the sequel movies coming out um, for me I feel like Anakin and maybe Anakin is Darth Vader looms really large in the sequel trilogy and I say that because I feel like the sequel trilogy was really built for a very specific audience and I think that that audience was the younger people who have come into much like I did honestly but but younger than me even but those who came into Star Wars through all of the animated work the Clone Wars animated series Rebels Resistance etc because I feel like where that Shakespearean level, kind of like what you were talking about earlier and, and that arc of, that Anakin has becoming Darth Vader and, and what that means in his redemption, I think that really looms large in the sequel trilogy. And uh, even though you're not seeing Darth Vader, I feel like his presence is there and perhaps more so Anakin's presence is there. Even right. though you're just really seeing the mask, I feel like the weight of Anakin and, and and we as the audience are again sort of the omniscient uh, audience knowing what has come to pass and how much weight and pathos come with that story and so to see that way on Kylo Ren on Ben Solo um, I think is really weighty and has so much import to it and I think connects so much more with the younger audience or audiences that know those stories um, because of the benefit of having seen them so Right. Um, I think that's a fantastic question. I don't know if that, if I'm just rambling then, or if that makes no, sense. No, no, I think it makes sense. <laughs> no, you're right. And I mean, judging by the sequels now, there's more room for diversity with different kind of characters. And we've, we've explored so much in the lore of Star Wars that we didn't in the earlier trilogy. So now there's, mm -hmm. there's openings for brand new characters, different kinds, different cultures, and that opened the way for new actors. And it just, I think it was a great move. I just kind of wish that, there was one quintessential bond with a, a brand new villain where I didn't feel that way with uh, Kylo Ren because it was sure. admittedly yeah. he was trying to follow in Darth Vader's footsteps, but he right. was sure. quite a Darth Vader. Right. In, in well, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did know that. And I feel like um, I, where I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I think that I feel a little bit less strongly about um, uh, and maybe more, a little bit more like uh, Damien in the sense that it, I felt like they didn't go as far as I wanted them to do. And part of that, I think, was there seemed to be different things that I think J.J. Abrams wanted to explore versus what Ryan Johnson wanted to explore. Um, they both had really interesting aspects of Kylo Ren to bring up. But it feels like we started Force Awakens with the idea that Vader would loom as a very prominent presence and then it sort of disappeared for a film to a degree, you know? And I feel like 
for me, what I would have loved uh, is to dive a little bit more into these things. What, uh, what the presence of Vader as a young adolescent, um, how that affected Ben, how that made him turn away, why it made him believe that his parents were maybe on the wrong side. Um, and we got a little bit of that with the betrayal that happens with, with Luke, but it feels like there, at least for me, was probably more stuff uh, that happened. And they've sort of sprinkled it throughout the comics and the novels. Um, but the one place where I do really agree with you, Barbara, is, um, and it, it, it's not, a, I, I could, you know, nitpick it, but, but they get to a place by the end of the film. Um, and because because the saga films really are Anakin's story, sort of Anakin and Darth Vader, sure. they get to a place at the end of the ninth film where um, he is able, or I guess, um, yeah, Ben is able to essentially do what Anakin was looking to do. To finish what he started. Yeah, to finish what he started, to, to do what, what Anakin was looking to do, to be able to save the people he loved from dying. Um, from death. And so he's able to bring Ray back from death by turning away from the dark side, accessing the light side. And so he does complete uh, a certain arc for Anakin in that sense by, by finding a selflessness that I think Anakin discovered, you know, in Return of the Jedi. So there is some of that. I just feel like because there was not more of an overarching picture and because some of these were created, like the prequels were created with no intention for the the sequels to exist in the way that they did that they fit to they fit together a little roughly but i guess the one thing i would suggest with that is if you think of all these from a, a fairy tale perspective which they really are like space opera fairy tales um you know they they can have sort of this uh uh malleable quality um i guess i kind of view them as like hey these are legends that people like passed on and on and on and they sort of morphed, you know, as they went through the galaxy. Sure. Um, and so they don't, like if things don't make exact sense, you as the audience kind of get to create that a little bit or wait for the story that is going to tie those little threads together. Um, so that's that's one way to approach it, I guess. I hope that was an answer to your question. Oh, it, like, no, it's totally it's geeking enough, out and rambling. <laughs> we geek out, there is no wrong answer, okay? We, okay, all right, perfect. <laughs> We go down all sorts of wormholes in Star Wars. <laughs> no, we, there's so much we can go off of. It's not even funny. It, we would, yeah, take up like a whole day of this. Um, <laughs> I have an interesting question for you as geeks. Uh, what do you think would have happened to this story in Phantom Menace uh, in the story of Anakin had Qui-Gon not died at the end? Oh, it would have been a whole, I think he that would have been a whole different character. A lot. Yeah, I think if and if you've uh, if you're referencing uh, what Dave Filoni noted, yes, I am. Uh, yes, brilliantly. I am. <laughs> so oh, it makes me cry when I think about it on the Mandalorian behind the scenes. What is it called? Gallery. Uh, the insider, right? Inside it's gallery. Insider. Yeah. Inside yeah. gallery. Um, I think we'd have a whole different story. Um, and Dave Filoni, uh, I just can't sing the praises enough of Dave Filoni. He's brilliant. He, he is amazing the way he described that. Yeah, a friend oh. told me to go and watch that. And I did, uh, that just changed everything of how I felt about Phantom Menace. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like he understands, uh, not only understands Star Wars a lot better than most people, uh, but he also seems to understand what George Lucas is trying to accomplish, but has a, a easier time conveying it. I because think. he's a storyteller. Maybe, maybe, yeah. you know, right. Yeah. I mean, George Lucas is a storyteller too. I just think he's focused on, different things and the end 
there seems to be certain skills that Filoni has where he's able to cut through some of the minutiae because I think he can point out where this stuff is in The Phantom Menace, but a whole audience watched The Phantom Menace and some of it was missed, you know? Well, I think, and, and Damien, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I, I think what is really fascinating is that, and this is in the case with the original trilogy, with the prequels, but it, it's very clear that uh, Lucas is, he, he really knows what themes he wants to get across in his stories. That Absolutely. is very clear. Mm -hmm. However, he is not a gifted writer and he's not a gifted filmmaker necessarily, which I really hesitate to say that because I mean, American graffiti great. Well, it's like you know, technically he is because he breaks, he breaks a uh, level. He like breaks, uh, he's groundbreaking Absolutely. is what I'm trying to say uh, with, with filmmaking. Yes. But yeah, when it comes to like the character, the heart or the emotional aspect of it, yes. and he almost is impatient with it. Yeah. Here's, here's where I relate to George. I had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, I was working in another job and I, he was my client for a couple hours. So a couple hours with George Lucas, wow, learned something. And so after a while, I started to feel like I could relate to this guy and the way he would talk and the way we talked a little bit about Star Wars. I was trying to work, so I wasn't trying to get too much into that. But I think he's a visionary. He's a visionary that wants to excel and break walls. And however long it takes to do that, he'll do it. But like you said, when it comes to character development, writing, even directing, while he's good at it, I don't think it's his best suit, but it's definitely something that has enabled him to act on it. Like he's, he's sure. wanting to do those things because of his visions. Mm -hmm. So I feel, I relate to that with my screenwriting that I feel when I do that on the side that I have a vision, but it doesn't always pan out exactly how it will be put on film and or sure. by actor or by director. So by vision, you, you're, you're surrendering yourself to, you know, by, by your, your, your imagination is your limit, but then there's different studios and different wants, different needs that will outweigh that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think he may be limited in some of those things too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also when you get to a certain level of uh, creator status, um, folks aren't going to challenge you as much or the limitations of budget or filmmaking or uh, just people saying no to you, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of gone. So that challenge posed to creators sometimes, what, and no matter the medium, not just uh, movies, but TV, comics, uh, et cetera, um, it stifles the creation process a little bit. Whereas sometimes I think that those barriers uh, really incite uh, the creative process. So I think something can, can be lost there as well. Well, and people, um, I, I think you are speaking really, both of you, really uh, well to who Lucas is. And, and maybe sometimes I feel like there, it, it can go both ways. People can praise him as if he has no faults, but they also can be so harsh in, for someone who has been involved with like building essentially like the, the modern film, yeah. Well, yeah. and the yeah. film industry. I mean, I, ILM exists because of George Lucas. Yeah. You know, like uh, we the the effects that are being used in things like the MCU or anything you see in Game of Thrones or whatever the, you are currently looking at owes a huge debt to uh, this person, and also uh, not, and and other people that were involved with him. Not that it all should go to him, but but I think there's this idea of. Um, 
I don't know. There's, it's very easy to get onto this bandwagon of like, oh, he, you know, he's he's over over the hill, or or he lost his way. And even things like you look at Phantom Menace to bring it back to the subject. Um, so many people will deride this film for being too CGI heavy, and it's actually, if you break it down, it's actually the second film, second prequel where they really started to get in the CGI. There was Absolutely. a lot of CGI used in this film, but there are huge parts, like the most of the podcast race is all miniatures. And the fast, uh, what? Podcast race. Podcast, pod race, <laughs> podcast race. Uh, the pod race, uh, um, yeah, it's mostly miniatures. And the fact that we think it's CGI uh, is, a, is a testament to how, how much uh, skill there was in making this film. You know, it just is, yeah, maybe some of the attention wasn't as much paid to the script or there were some things that were rougher. And um, at the same time, our actors are dealing with being the pioneers, the astronauts, if you will, of like, hey, here's a new technology, go act inside this. No one else has ever done it before. You can't ask anyone else for any kind of rep how to deal with it. Yeah, I you know, feel, here's a completely CGI character. You have I a feel, scene with him. I feel George was, was limited in episodes four, five, and six for a lack of technology. And then during episodes one, two, and three, he was limited on his being critiqued for too much technology. <laughs> so I feel that while the CG, it was, it was heavy use in episode one, but definitely in episode two, a lot. Um, yeah, that's when I everything feel, became blue screen. I feel that episodes four, five, and six just have more of an organic feel because they use sure. models. I just kind of feel that there was more life to it. And looking back, um, re-watching episode one recently, there was heavy, heavy use of CG. There just was. Um, and I don't think it was horrible by any means. It just, it, it's just, it, it just dates that era. Sure. And that he was trying to excel to greater, greater uh, feats as, as far as you know, technology and trying to bring something more real to his vision. But... Do you guys feel the same way with the CG use of episodes one, two, and three? Like, do you feel like it's too much? Do you feel like it's too little? I feel like it's too much. Um, I would even say some of the, the things that were added to four, five, and six, I don't particularly <laughs> oh, like. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I haven't even gotten there to special editions yet. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, though, as a moviegoer, I'm it's not often that I'm, I am someone who says like, oh, I really loved those special effects. I'm just someone who visually, there's something in my eye when I'm watching something that if it's more practical, I'm more visually attracted to it. Uh, there's something in terms of, of uh, CGI that just doesn't, it doesn't connect with me. I don't know why, um, but the, the heavier that it is, the more that I'm going to pull back and not enjoy it as much. Um, that's just, yeah. What, do you what would be some examples of that? And before we move on, I'm curious yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. Honestly, when I watch something that's more like, um, uh, oh, what's, what's the, the puppets? Um, dark, crystal. dark Crystal, the new Dark Crystal, and how much that is practical puppetry. Yes, they utilized some CG, but it was essentially just to like, uh, to a greater detail animate their faces a little bit um that i am like visually that makes sense to me that looks really good that's sure. great um when i see entire landscapes like i'm thinking uh i don't know why this is just popping in my head but even with the 
the prequels, when you see like entire, like you see Coruscant or you see, you know, all of a, a city that's digital or the Hunger Games and like you come into the capital and it's all CG. Uh, for me, I'm just, there's nothing attractive to me and visually. It just, sure. I'm like, oh, well that's CG and that's right. all. That's how know? it registers, right. And yeah. then there's some visions that need it, which is kind of, it's a double-edged sword. Like I'm, I'm thinking, uh, the release of 2003's uh, Matrix Reloaded when Neo is battling the thousands of Agent Smiths. I mean, you, there's no way you could do that scene, sure. you know, organically. So you need it. And I know yeah. that that would be the vision of the Wachowski brothers when they were doing it. And mm -hmm. um, that's heavy, heavy, heavy CG. You know, mm -hmm. you need that for that kind of scene. But looking back, you look at it and, you know, <laughs> you can't help but critique it just a bit. It's yeah. just a bit outdated. And Absolutely. I feel that episodes one and two specifically are heavy use on it, but I have to respect the vision, which is what I think the point is um, with, uh, with its maker is just to, to, to really appreciate what it was supposed to be, not critiquing yeah. what it is now. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think I, I, again, like when we are talking about expectations that the audience brought to the prequels and especially episode one, um, I think, part of the reason that we as an audience struggled so much is because we uh as a mass did not go in with what is george lucas trying to do we went like oh great more star wars we know what that means um and he had a different idea um when it comes to the the cgi um i i guess i'm a little more forgiving than you i guess uh <laughs> I, I i like visually these films work a lot for me there are times when the cgi is not working but um it's almost like I would compare it to um, the Clone Wars. The, the first couple seasons of the Clone Wars, the animation, uh, they did not have a lot of funding. It's dated now, given how it, we've advanced with animation. Um, but because the characters are working and because I love Star Wars uh, and the franchise, um, I'm, I know that for me, I'm willing to get through some of the stuff where I have to kind of bear with, uh, you know, the, the technology of the times. I kind of feel like that with... Uh, with the prequels, I, there's not um, technological issues that I have. It's more, you know, if I have any nitpicks, it becomes things that uh, I guess I'm a little iffy about with George Lucas, um, like his, his, his choices with uh, regarding characters or takes. Right. I do think um, audience, or not audience, but cast is the one that I would say probably struggled the most. I think that if there could have been something uh, more it's, it feels when you're watching this that the cast did not have a lot of support in regards to like what they were what environment they were in what what they were uh, how they deal with this new technology I think some of them got it and some of them clearly uh, struggled a lot more and I think some of the younger actors um, especially when we get into two and three like Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman had uh, more difficulty than than people like say uh, Liam Neeson or, or Ewan McGregor I'm I'm smirking only because you said character. Um, dare I bring up Jar Jar? <laughs> you guys want to go there? <laughs> what do you have to say about Jar Jar? Because I think I have a I I have a, a different opinion. I think that Jar Jar was intended to appeal to kids, um, yeah. and they liked him, which is great. Um, I honestly, in watching the prequels, especially uh, in rewatching them recently, have more issue with is it Waddle. Watto. Yeah. Watto. Um, I think that the, 
unfortunate racist stereotypes of some characters uh, yeah. is what really grated on me more than anything. And I would say, I mean, that applies to Jar Jar as well. Um, but I definitely don't want to be one of those people who, like, Ahmed Vest is a wonderful human being, and I wish him well, and I'm, it's so unfortunate that he had to uh, experience, uh, and, and the same with Hayden Christensen. It, and, it's awful, really, Jake it is. Lloyd, it's just yeah. awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jake Lloyd, uh, it's so awful that they had to go through those experiences. And these are just characters. And you, and you see and you see what happened to Jake Lloyd later. You know, it kind of yeah. can't help but think that the fans outlashing toxicity has anything to do with that. It does, and it affects yeah. people. It really does. Yeah, actors yeah. too. Absolutely. Um, and and I don't think that these characters like Watto or like Jar Jar were created maliciously, but obviously in a more uh, aware and mindful uh, space as we are now. I think we can look back and say like you know, maybe had there been some oversight or maybe had there been some more uh, inclusivity in terms of the writing room or uh, just the, the crew, uh, there could have been some greater conversations about like, hey, maybe, you know, we steer clear of utilizing these dialects or utilizing these uh, stereotyped um, characteristics. Uh, we could have steered clear of that. But in terms of just like Jar Jar as a character, I, I'm definitely not someone who's on the like, <laughs> I hate Jar Jar bandwagon, but yeah. I'm also not someone who's like Jar Jar is secretly a Sith Lord. I'm. I'm just it's not. it's interesting because we <laughs> went through all the all the years of Episode One. We've gone from the beginning where some people were like, "Hey, Jar Jar wasn't too bad," or some people saying he's kind of funny and cute. To sure, sure. I just absolutely can't stand the sight of that man. I need to burn him. To yeah. then now, like you, Barbara, I feel kind of sorry for. Ahmed Best and what he had to go through. <laughs> He's gone yeah. through like this whole evolution of feeling for the character and the actor. Yeah. And uh, I wonder where that will go 20 years from now when we look back. <laughs> And now he has his own yeah, TV show, which is great. Show, yeah. uh, and he gets to be a Jedi, which is fantastic. So that's very exciting. That's good. It's, it's, all, it's yeah. an interesting, uh, it's definitely an interesting journey for the character. And, and I, I did not dislike, I never had like a liking for Jar Jar. I wasn't like, oh, he's Jar Jar fan, but I never had the, the hate that some people had. I guess what, what always confused me, especially with my theater friends, um, I remember having these, <laughs> these debates backstage about Star Wars during like productions of Cabaret and things. But um, Jar Jar is a fool. He's, he's the archetype of a fool. And, and that's the role he plays. He plays it well. He is annoying i mean Absolutely. even to the point where like in episode one i used to point this out to to people as as evidence whether it is or not but we have c3po who is who is you know the the stuffy uh sort of comedic relief of the original trilogy making a comment about how annoying and bizarre jar jar is so when you you have essentially like the the uh that role from the previous trilogy going, hey, this guy is even further out than me. Um, I think there was an intention behind that. And I honestly wonder if we lost um, some sort of bigger role that that character would have played in the next two films because of the backlash, because I think it, it does seem like he disappears. There was a, an yeah. intentional like, well, people don't like him as much as I thought they would. So he disappears. He gradually he went behind the curtain. <laughs> right. He does show up in the Clone Wars a few times and have uh, some some episodes that are somewhat 
consequential. Um, but what I actually did did like is Disney brought him back into the canon. I heard in some book where it's said that he eventually, after the death of Padme, moved back to Naboo and became like sort of this poor street performer that was really popular with like uh, children on Naboo. And I just thought, what a what a like a sort of a sad, poignant like. Uh, uh, thought of of like you know Jar Jar just having seen like some of the biggest things in the world happen as this upheaval you know occurred and now he's just on the streets of Naboo like you know juggling or something. I think for me it was just it was just the tone of the voice. <laughs> I think I'm looking back. I'm okay with everything else. I get the the gibberish and the talk. I mean we had sure. it with Yoda you know, uh, but it's just the tone a little bit for me this time. It was just like that's a little bit. It's intense. For me. <laughs> He's a specific flavor, that's yeah. for sure. Exactly. But either way, I respect the vision. I know I know what George was looking for. I mean, looking back at the makings of, which I've seen years ago, was I know that his intention was for kids, like you said, Barbara, and to make him the funny character and to make it kind of lighter because he was wanting to make the next ones darker. So he wanted to make this one a little bit more upbeat. I get that. Um, with with the backlash that he's gotten and the prequels, I think has changed. I think it really has. And I think looking back, you know, twenty years later, twenty plus years later, now it's it's taken on a whole new meaning. You know, especially because of the the rest of Star Wars lore. And you can't help it when you rewatch Phantom Menace, you you, you look back at all those other things like Rebels and Clone Wars. Sure, absolutely. I would say the next thing that I want to talk about would be. You had episodes four, five, and six with John Williams with his amazing score, very pronounced with the Empire theme song, the Darth Vader theme. And then you get a very drastic, dramatic change with Duel of the Fates. And I would say this was quintessential in this new saga. It put a new face as to what to expect. Um, I think that from here, John Williams' career change for a different kind of vibe than it was for four five and six um do you feel that uh do you well first of all do you agree <laughs> um i think that there well first i will say and i i will do a plug actually for another podcast called blast points which is a, a fantastic star wars focused podcast um but they had a gentleman on who's a composer and who has worked on it wasn't kevin kiner was it no, no I don't think so. Um, but he's worked on some Star Wars video games uh, as a composer, but he really knows and understands composition and broke down the entire Star Wars saga. And it was amazing. So for your listeners, I would highly, and viewers, I would highly encourage them to check out this episode of the Blast Points podcast. I'll try to find the link for you. Um, but it's when you see how in depth and in what great detail uh, John Williams has built the entire, all of the music for all three trilogies. It's amazing. And especially with something like Duel of the Fates, where you're getting into the, the symbiotic nature of the Sith and the Jedi and what that means and how uh, chromatically that works in terms of the, the music and the notes itself. I mean, 
I am not someone that knows music to that degree, but I will say it is breathtaking to have someone break that down and to understand what even a, a portion of what's going on in John Williams' mind. It's it's absolutely amazing. He has the biggest imagination I've ever known. <laughs> I've never met the man, but <laughs> to do everything he's done, he just he's kind of evolved with with each film. Although you can kind of tell it's always John Williams, but uh, something about episode one's Duel of the Fates was kind of like that game changer. It was like, okay, you're going to go this direction. And I feel that changed the mood for what was to be a foreshadow of Anakin's future, which we already knew, but it was well done. And I can't help but feel that when we've seen the other side stories, um, the the composer escapes my mind. I, I want to say Michael Giacciano might be the, the composer for Rogue One Rogue One, and um, for, for Solo, as far as I remember. Um, Did he do Solo as well? He might have. Yeah, he I, might have I, right I can't that. remember. He may have. I, I don't remember. But that mood changed. And it wasn't like necessarily a bad thing. It just was, you, you, you can't help but miss John Williams's feel to the film that he had already established for so long. And now all of a sudden we're, we're changing the story and the music, which to me plays a huge, huge part in films. I would say films do well without music in its most intense scenes, but then when it's needed would be when it's the most dramatic change for a storyline, such as sure. the fight between Darth Maul and, and Qui-Gon and, and um, Obi-Wan. So that, that would be a time you, you wouldn't have, the silent intensity. This is this is a time to, you know, let it all out. Yeah, um, well, and sure. even something, and this was such a small detail, but even with that, the fact that there were vocals to that, and there had not been vocals with exactly. any other music, is such a defining shift and change that it speaks so much to the undercurrent and like what is happening and the the tone that really. Well, and there's actually uh, that there's a couple. I remember, I think this was in the episode you're talking about. There's this moment that uh, in Return of the Jedi um, in the throne room where Luke sort of finally loses, Vader pushes him to an edge where he suggests that he's going to turn his sister to the dark side and he loses it and and they clash and there is this uh, vocal choir that has, yeah. Well, in just, it wasn't, it wasn't in any of the movies except Return of the Jedi to that point. They had an... Uh, emperor's theme that had that but also this one moment where you have this moment of father son good versus evil you know battling and these the vocal swells and so it's almost like there was an intention from uh from williams to to go like hey i went to we touched on that epic battle that has been going on over and over and over again for eons but here we are in the height of it and, and, and uh, Duel of the Fates is at, or at the prime, you know? This is just, you know, Return of the Jedi is the, the last Jedi and, and the very last of the Sith, you know? But here we are when it's in, the, you know, the height of both of these empires. Um, and so I, I totally agree with you. I think that the, the music of the prequels is like some of the most uh, successful and fascinating stuff that they had. Yeah, and, and that battle was, you know, as we were, we were talking about with the Mandalorian um, uh, extras that we were watching that on Disney Plus, that that is so, such an important fight because of what happens from there. Um, I mean, essentially, once Qui-Gon's gone, uh, no, I, I didn't mean to make that to a pun, but <laughs> once Qui-Gon's dead, um, <laughs> then, I mean, at that point, uh, 
everything changes for um, for yeah. Obi Wan. I mean, at that point, it's here's here's the kid. Teach him. I know that you're not ready for it, but you're going to have to be. Step up and let's do it. Uh, because he's the chosen one, no pressure. <laughs> so from there, it was just everything fall falls on Obi Wan, and I think that was part of maybe that swell of the music, the duel of the fates. This is where you know everything changes because of this fight, and that that just changed everything. I mean, I I can just say from from there on, uh, we all saw a very stressed out Obi Wan Kenobi because he had this <laughs> huge obligation you know, that he sure. didn't exactly choose to do, which was now he had to raise Anakin as a Padawan for himself. So I would say that episode one, looking back was a very well done film, though there were some certain things that we could critique. And I think that <laughs> as a Star Wars fan, we shouldn't look too closely at those critiques and just look at for what we, for what it is. And when we understand George and his vision, I think we can kind of take away a really great story overall at the end of the day. Absolutely. Before, before we go, uh, where can fi folks find you guys uh, for fan base press and your endeavors that you continue to do? Sure. Uh, you can find all of our, uh, so we are both a comic book publisher and a geek culture site. You can find all of our catalog of books as well as all of our uh, daily reviews, interviews, our whole podcast network at fanbasepress.com. Uh, we're on all of the social medias as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, everything except MySpace. MySpace is so 1999. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Damien underscore DeCarlo. Also making a geek underscore podcast. Don't forget to hit the subscribe on uh, this channel for more cool content. Until next time, everybody, keep cool, keep calm, and geek out. Good night, everybody.